Hi everyone, welcome to the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. This is Dr. Whited, and you know, COVID has been a significant interruption to my podcasting efforts of uh, a year or so ago, Um, but I did fill that time last summer with some anonymous questions submitted by my abnormal psychology students uh, in the summer session. So I thought I'd do the same thing again this year. It gives them a chance to hear me kind of answer these questions and... uh, um, kind of see, you know, some more more in-depth thinking about the uh, abnormal psychology and psychopathology and all the questions that they have about it. Um, in this case, I have, I think, about 15 or 16 questions submitted by my class. And I'm just going to go through and uh, answer them uh, a little bit off the cuff. I may have to pause and do some research for some of them, but I think for most of these, I'll be able to just straight up answer. Uh, I've not looked at them, so, you know, it'll be a surprise to everyone uh, what they have to say, because um, I'm going to be kind of trying to answer them live as much as possible, unless I need to look something up, and you'll know if I have to go and look something up. Um, so here we go. Without further ado, let's get started. So the first question, if someone was diagnosed with dementia due to having strokes, vascular dementia as they, as they label it correctly, uh, should they see a clinical neuropsychologist? And if so, do you know any? Well, I don't really want to say um, who is uh, around Greenville, North Carolina here, who's a neuro- neuropsychologist, because I don't want them getting calls from across the country if anyone listens to this in another place. But um, so this student who asked this, if they feel comfortable, can, can email me and I can give some recommendations of people in town um, that I know, some, uh, one of whom at least is in our department here at uh, East Carolina University. Uh, but yeah, they should see a clinical neuropsychologist. So neuropsychologists work with people with um, you know, cognitive issues for of any reason, basically. And vascular dementia is, ba- je- uh, excuse me, vascular dementia is definitely one of those. Uh, so yes, um, in vascular dementia, you know, people have problems with cognition, thinking, memory, uh, those sorts of things due to problems with the, with, uh, um, with the brain damage due to uh, a stroke. So what a clinical neuropsychologist would do is evaluate the person's functioning, find out exactly what deficits they have, and then could make some excellent recommendations in terms of accommodations and ways that they could kind of compensate for any of these problems. They can also continue to measure um, someone with vascular dementia's um, uh, performance over time to see if their, you know, ability to, you know, think, remember, etc. is um, like how quickly that's declining over time or if there are improvements with some of the accommodations uh, and things like that. So yeah, anyone with um, dementia, cognitive issues, clinical neuropsychologists, uh, are the people to see. And they, you know, they re- make recommendations to neurologists and, and people in, in other um, adjacent fields in order to make sure that people get, you know, comprehensive care that they need. Good question. Email me about specific people. <laughs> Next question. What is the best way to talk and understand someone who is battling depression and anxiety? Uh, so the best thing to do for someone who is battling depression and anxiety is to try to get them to go to a counselor. Um, and it, there are lots of very effective treatments for depression and anxiety. Uh, my favorite for depression is behavioral activation. That's my area of expertise. But cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, those kind of approaches are, are pretty effective. Um, anxiety, you want some kind of exposure-based treatment. Uh, so CBT for anxiety includes some degree of exposure. You know, I would recommend something that emphasizes exposure 
um, much more than that. Uh, but you know, that's just my recommendation. All of it is shown to work. Um, but any, it's going to need to have some kind of, um, exposure component to it in order to be effective. Um, these questions were asked early in the semester before I go on a tirade about how important exposure is for treating anxiety. Uh, so, um, this student is asking, probably knows the answer to this question already, but, uh, for those of you out there listening who are not in my class, yeah, an exposure-based treatment is best for anxiety. Uh, and for depression, you want, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, uh, or behavioral activation, or BA, which is, again, my favorite. But all three of those are pretty effective uh, for depression. Sometimes medications are also indicated. Uh, the combination, you know, medication does not interfere with depression treatment at all. So if someone wants to do both, that's great. But the gold standard really is getting um, behavior therapy or a combination of behavior therapy and medication. Uh, medication alone does work, um, but the problem with that is it, it helps with it basically, let, to, to put it um, in a basic sense, it helps your brain, but it doesn't help your life. Uh, and therapy will also help you change your life, the way you think and the way you feel in ways that will get more long-term results, uh, whereas medication only is helpful while the medication is on board. Now, that being said, if someone's going through a tough time and there's an end in sight to that tough time, then sometimes just temporarily being on medication is all they need. It'll, it frees them up to make the changes that they need to their life uh, whenever the stressor has passed. Um, so, you know, I don't want to uh, poo-poo medication here, but I do want to point out that for long-term change, it's often, uh, therapy is often necessarily, even if medication is on board. The best way to talk and understand someone, I mean, the best way is actually to listen, you know, to to open up to hear what they're going through and to go into that conversation, not with the idea of being someone who provides them with a solution, because often that makes it sound like you're not listening. So if someone says, you know, I've been feeling really down and I feel like shit and I hate everyone and I hate my life, um, you know, ask them to talk about it. Say, what's going on? Tell me, tell me a little bit about how you're feeling. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That sucks. That's really tough. Just listen. Because if you start to throw out solutions, then it sounds like it's easy. Well, why don't, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Will you do this? Will you do that? Um, you know, those things are important maybe for later, but especially to start, just listen. Let them, let them get that out. Let them hear themselves talk um, and just be there as a supportive friend to listen. That's the best way to talk to someone. And then you might, you know, start to make some suggestions maybe on a later day or after, you, after you've given, the, given them a few listening sessions, I think, is the best way to be a friend. That's what I would want, would want from one of my friends. If I was feeling down or anxious, I would want them to hear me, um, to listen and validate what I'm experiencing and how difficult it might be, you know, and then maybe like, you know, go hang out uh, over dinner or play some video games or goof off or something to distract me. And then, you know, maybe a few days later, come back and be like, yeah, I really appreciate that, um, that you felt comfortable telling me those things. That was awesome. You know, what are you, what are you thinking about doing about it? Then, you know, Show that you listen first. That's the way to help someone who's struggling. You're not a therapist, so don't try to therapize them or anything like that. Get them to a therapist if that seems to be indicated. Um, but, you know, listen first. That's the key. Next question. Is it possible to accurately self-diagnose and evaluate oneself in regards to mental health issues with undergraduate-level understanding of the topics? Can someone recognize they may suffer from XYZ and be able to address it without the aid of a mental health professional? Um, there's some caveats to this, but overall, I'm going to say no. 
Um, some of this is self-justified. You know, I've spent uh, decades of my life studying mental health, and that makes me very good at um, diagnosing, but not just diagnosing, like actually understanding why someone's experiencing certain problems and, and then figuring out what to do to help them. So it takes a lot of advanced training to be able to do this well. Um, if someone sat down with the DSM, perhaps, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, and looked through every single criteria and could very well self-evaluate whether they met that or not, um, maybe they could come close to getting it right. Now, that doesn't really help anything. I mean, they could figure out what label might fit them, but that doesn't really change anything. Like, it doesn't tell them where their problems came from or what to do about it. Um, it just puts the right label on it. So it doesn't really solve anything to begin with. But the other part of it is, is I don't think we can self-evaluate that well. I wouldn't trust myself to know necessarily if I was experiencing depression or if I was just kind of down for a while or having a rough time. Because if I'm feeling crappy, I'm so involved in that and so in my own head, I don't think you can really step out of that and give yourself a really um, comprehensive evaluation. I myself, as a therapist with expertise in depression would probably go to a therapist if I was feeling down or depressed for a, a, a long enough period of time that it seemed to be a, not just a transient problem, that it seemed to be something that I needed to get addressed. I would go see a mental health person. And I would rattle off all my symptoms and talk to them about it and probably get close to making the diagnosis for them. But remember, I'm an expert. Um, and, but still, like, I would be biased because I'm in my own head with it. So I don't think it's possible to accurately self-diagnose. I also don't think it's possible to accurately diagnose people who are not your patient. So, you know, to talk to a friend and say, oh, you meet all the criteria, I think you have depression. You may be correct, you may not. Um, get them to a professional. Get them to someone with the experience to understand all the caveats and, and all the, uh, you know, subtleties of diagnosis. But more importantly, again, once you get the right diagnosis, that's only step one. It doesn't solve any problems at all. All it does is put a label on it. Um, which can be helpful in many ways, but, you know, the treatment and the finding out what to do next is what's most important. So, that being said, if you know the DSM and you suspect you might be struggling from something, that's good to be able to do, to be able to know maybe, to be able to identify, yeah, I should get this, I should look into this, I should talk to someone about this. I think that's the most important piece, to know what these mental health issues are so that you know that there are treatments available and you or to get you or your loved one or whomever to the right people to get you the help you need. Ooh, this looks like a good one. It's a long one. And I see COVID in it. I like these. These questions are fun. Okay. Uh, it's a little bit personal though. So I, I, you know, these are anonymous questions and I don't like to get too far into the personal end of it, but let's say that this person knows someone who suffers from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, and before COVID, the person that they knew were doing just fine with medications. Um, but then this person that the person who asked the question knows, um, lost their brother, um, and their wife 90 days apart. Um, so these were, um, you know, very good friends of the person that, um, that the question asker knows. Okay. So let me read, let me, let me go back. So the person asking the question knows someone who lost a brother and the brother's wife, um, during COVID very close in, in, in time and medications were working well for this person's schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but you know, not so much now. Um, so these things all happen. Sorry, I'm kind of reading ahead as I talk. Um, 
So to compensate, this person threw themselves into work and they just started working, working, working very hard um, and uh, coped a lot by shopping every day at different stores. So that really made them happy and made them feel good and helped them cope with these major losses. So then COVID came and there were the stores, shopping was the main coping strategy and now that is gone. So now they're back on meds, feeling very distant and alone. Um, and whenever the person asking the question tries to get this person that they're talking about help, um, they get pushed away. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of really problems and challenges. This person's dealing with a lot of, a lot of turmoil around that. So hopefully with restrictions kind of loosening a little bit, um, perhaps the person that, um, the question asker is talking about can resume some of these old coping strategies. Now, I don't think shopping is probably the best coping strategy. It's a good distraction coping strategy. It's a good way of kind of, you know, taking yourself away from your problems, which we all need from time to time. But in the long term, our problems are still there. And if this person is still experiencing a lot of grief over these losses, um, I would highly recommend that they get in touch with some kind of counselor um, a psychologist, a social worker, um, a licensed professional counselor, depending on what state they're in, and talk to someone to help them work through this, help them work through the grief and help them work through these challenges. The problem here is not schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. You know, outside that makes it harder, but outside of that context, if this, this person has schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but even if they didn't, Losing people close to you and then losing some of the major coping strategies, even if they are distraction coping strategies, is really difficult and really challenging. And it helps to have someone to walk you through re-engaging back into your life and re-engaging with people you care about. Um, the person asking the question feels bad because they're trying to help, um, but this person isn't letting them help. So I would go back to my answer to a previous question and listen first. Just take the time to hear what this person is going through and give them lots of time to listen. Don't worry about trying to solve it yet. Just listen. And since this person does seem to do okay with distraction, maybe taking some time to help distract them, to talk about things they enjoy, to play a, a game with them or something like that, um, to go visit if possible um, and spend time. So spend some time with the problems that they're having and talking about that and spend some time away from them, just enjoying their company. Um, then from there, that may help and get them to a place where they feel like they can seek additional help. And for this person, I would highly recommend um, some kind of therapy. I think that would be, uh, be very helpful um, to work through the grief um, and to get them re-engaged now that there is some ability to re-engage with some of the COVID restrictions um, loosening in some places, opening up for business and that sort of thing. All right, great question so far. All right, here's another one. Out of all of the top things and topics that we discuss and view in this class, which is your most favorite topic to discuss or teach about and why? Well, my favorite is uh, depression and anxiety, as you may have guessed, um, because I feel like these are so commonly experienced. You know, these are problems that, and these are very complex in that they come about from many different reasons. 
Um, so we tend to think of like depression, especially as just something wrong with the brain, chemical imbalance, throw some drugs at it and it'll get better. And that's so far from the truth. You definitely have people who have a predilection for depression due to their genetics and things like that. But by and large, you know, depression can happen to anyone just due to their life circumstances. Same with anxiety. You know, anxiety is part of life. We all experience anxiety. It's an anxiety disorder when it's so extreme that it impairs our functioning in a significant way. Like we all get nervous before we do something that's nerve wracking, especially public speaking, stuff like that. We all get nervous about that. That's normal. That can be a performance enhancer sometimes. Um, but when we're so anxious that we avoid anything that might have to do with public speaking or we avoid being in front of other people, for example, is just one example of an anxiety problem, um, then it becomes an issue, right? Then it's, a, then it's something we need treatment for. So those are my two favorite topics in terms of where stuff comes from. Um, my, one of my favorite things to discuss is actually the treatments that are available. To know that there is treatment out there for pretty much every mental health issue that someone can experience um, and that these treatments are pretty effective you know, some more than others in different areas, um, but there are effective treatments available. So if someone is suffering from a mental health issue, especially depression or anxiety, there is relief from it through therapy. Now, not every therapy works for everyone. Not every therapist is a good match. Sometimes it takes some trial and error. But, you know, I believe that for most people, the vast, vast majority of people, if they can get the help that they need, they can get better. Now, it's challenging to get the help that you need. You know, I don't want to minimize that. Um, and it can be expensive depending on what kind of insurance you have, where you live, those kind of things. But it's possible and it works. And especially for our students, you know, uh, most, most colleges and universities have a counseling center for their students. Now, most of them are underfunded and overwhelmed. But at the same time, you can get the help you need at places like that, especially for students. They have some of the best access to mental health care. So those are my favorite topics. Great question. Get me to talk about myself. That's all. That always works. Uh, next question. Is it true that people that talk to themselves have a higher IQ? Um, I don't know the research behind that. Um, you know, I don't think that that's actually true. Um, if there's a correlation between self-talk and IQ, I'm sure it's a, you know, a survey done that they just measured people's IQs and saw if they talk to themselves, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a reason for it being connected. So it's a, I'm sure it's a correlation, if anything. Um, I wouldn't put too much stock into it or worry about it. Next question. Is there reason to be alarmed by a child who regularly, almost nights, nightly, ends up sleepwalking? I'm curious that this may tie in, tie, this may tie to in their waking life, and if there should be any reason for concern over this with it being rather persistent. My, I don't have the greatest knowledge of sleep and wake disorders. Um, uh, I do know though that sleepwalking is not uncommon uh, among kids and that it, it does happen. Um, and it, it's often something that people, uh, that reduces with age um, and with more brain development. Um, but if this is something that someone is concerned, of, concerned with, um, I would consider a sleep study where um, someone is uh, put, they put a lot of electrodes on their head uh, and they measure their brain waves basically while they sleep um, to make sure usually this is, you know, for sleep apnea and for many other challenges. But if it's not causing major problems um, currently in terms of the person getting in kind of dangerous situations or something like that, then I wouldn't worry about it very much. I think that that would be something that is... Um, 
not going to lead to major problems later in life or, or problems uh, in that way, especially if the kid is, you know, they're feeling rested, they're feeling okay, they're happy and vibrant, then I, I wouldn't worry too much about the sleepwalking. But if you are worried, a sleep center would probably be one place to contact to see what recommendations they might have. Again, not my area of expertise, so, you know, don't take this as like a major clinical recommendation. If I was working with a patient who had this kind of problem, I would definitely do more research on it before making uh, any recommendations. But again, these are my off-the-cuff thoughts on um, these anonymous questions, so take it for the grain of salt. What are some ways a person can be confident about expressing their concern about their mental health to their family or peers. Okay, so this is, if I'm someone who has some concerns about my own mental health, how do I bring it to my family or peers? Well, um, just like we talked a little bit about diagnosis before, I would stay away from diagnosis. I would stay away from, you know, I have depression and here's what that means and I think, you know, I self-diagnosed and here's what I think is going on. I would stay away from that kind of thing. What, what I would emphasize with family or peers is, is to say, you know, I really feel like I want to let you all know because I could use some support in this, but I've really been struggling with this thing for a little while. Um, it's been really hard for me with this, with this, with this. And, and just to, again, allow yourself to be supported. Allow yourself to say, here's what's been going on with me. And, you know, I mentioned before, the best thing to do when you're trying to help someone who's having some of the issues this person says in the question um, is to listen first. And so you may want to preface to say, I just really need y'all to listen. I'm not looking for solutions right now. I just feel like I've been hiding what I'm going through. And if I got it out into the open, I would feel a little better. And this may lead to some solutions or something like that, but I, I would say something like that um, and just kind of open up to my friends uh, or family. Uh, and and let them in on what I've been experiencing. And, you know, there are people who care about you, so, you know, hopefully they'll listen to your desire to be heard and to get this out. Good question. Um, next question. If the comorbidity rate for a disorder is close to 100%, could it just be classified as a synonym of the disorders it usually comes with. So yeah, we talk about uh, comorbidity in class and it's about 50%. So about half of people with one um, mental health diagnosis uh, would probably also meet criteria for another one. And a lot of times we see this as um, a, a, a dual diagnosis with something like depression and a substance use issue. Um, and, you know, we just see that as self-medication, right? Someone is the best way that someone found to work with their um, mood issues is to, to drink, for example. Now, that's not a very good solution or a good long-term solution or one that I would recommend, but if it's effective, then that's what people are going to end up doing, especially without, um, with poor access to therapy and, and, and other resources. They're, you know, trying to figure out for themselves, and they landed on one that unfortunately can spiral out of control for folks. Um, it, so the comorbidity rate, you know, between certain things, you know, the comorbidity rate overall is about 50%. Uh, if it is 100%, then yeah, I agree. It's basically you're saying the same thing with different words, right? So if the overlap between, uh, I don't want to give any examples because none of them have that much overlap, but when when the American Psychiatric Association is developing these diagnoses, they look at these overlapping rates. And if two disorders had 100% 
comorbidity rate. Like if everyone who met criteria for disorder A met criteria for disorder B, they're effectively the same thing. And so they would change those criteria to try to have that make sense. Um, so combine them or something like that. So yeah, that's how that's actually how the, the research works when it comes to determining um, uh, what problems separate themselves into different categories, a la the different disorders. Next question. Because I am a twin, I have always wondered this. Say that hypothetically a pair of identical twins were raised in the exact same environment and had the exact same experiences. Would they have different qualities slash personalities? Oh, this is a great question. It gets back into some really kind of like the influence of genetics and environment. But what you're saying here is if someone has the exact same genetics and the exact same experiences, which I would wager is not completely possible, um, but let's you know, hypothetically, um, yeah, for all intents and purposes, they would be pretty much a carbon copy of each other. They would pretty much be the exact same person. They would probably have the same responses to various situations. They would have the same interests. They would have all of that because everything that makes them who they are would be exactly the same. Now, I don't think this is possible in practice. And I think everyone's experiences are slightly different, even if it's just minor and sometimes even imperceptible things. Um, and everyone's genetics are slightly different too. Even in twins that have like 100% of the same genetic code, they can have different experiences that then backwards influence the genetic code um, or influence how those genes are expressed. Um, so that's epigenetics and some other um, things that are coming into play there, which I can't explain to you in depth in a short period of time and probably wouldn't do it justice anyway. Um, but, you know, so this is impossible. But yes, I would, per my under, my understanding of the science, um, people who had identical genetics and identical life experiences would be basically identical people. Again, not possible, but theoretically, yeah. That'd be a cool science fiction film. Someone should make that. Next question. Um, my question is, can someone be friends with someone you may like or be attracted to either physically or mentally? I have seen this question come up a lot in my generation, especially on social media. A lot of opinions are given on this matter, but from my observations, I see that the answer is not one-sided. A follow-up question to this would be, is it possible to be friends with someone you once had feelings for in the past, such as an ex? Um, you know, this is outside of the realm of, um, you know, like mental health care and diagnosis and the really kind of the scope of one, um, what the class is about, but more importantly, my expertise. So, you know, this is a, a very complex relationship question. My answer would be yes. I think if we have an attraction to someone or had a previous relationship with them, we can still maintain a non-romantic friend relationship with them. But I think the important piece of that is clear communication. If we are trying to maintain a friend relationship, but still are also kind of interested in a romantic relationship or at least a sexual relationship, then that makes things complicated, right? So I think in order to maintain something like this, it's important to communicate with each other and to say, look, I am not interested in the romantic parts of our relationship anymore, but I really value our friendship and I want our relationship to look like this, but not like this. So here's the things I'm interested in doing with you and here's the things that I'm not. Um, you know, this may become additionally complicated with, uh, with sexual experiences, but if someone 
if people feel they can manage the boundary of like, yeah, I don't want a romantic relationship with you, but I do occasionally like having sex with you. Then again, if the conversation, if the boundaries are clear, then that may work. And if everyone agrees to those boundaries and truly agrees to them, not just says that they'll agree to them because they are hoping that something will change in the future. Um, so with that sexual caveat, I think it makes it more difficult. But I think without that, um, because of all the you know biochemical changes that happen with sex, it does facilitate a, a greater degree of romantic attachment to someone. Um, now, certainly casual relationships are just fine and viable, but that but there is a lot of brain biology that makes us want to be attached to the person. But without that, I think as long as we have clear boundaries with each other and we agree with them, then you can very you can definitely be friends with folks who you had a previous relationship as long as everyone respects those boundaries. And if one of you doesn't, then it probably won't work. So that's my best answer to that question. That's a cool question. Again, outside of my, you know, academic expertise, but a great question. Next one. Uh, have we been able to identify or come up with more evidence as to why the ventricles of the brain become larger? If it is due to brain matter decreasing around the ventricles, do we know why that happens? Do all patients with schizophrenia have larger ventricles, or is it just one of the many signs? Well, schizophrenia isn't my um, area of expertise, but for those of you that don't know or aren't in my class, um, everyone in my class, of course, knows this. Um, one of the uh, in the advanced stages of schizophrenia, we do see um, the ventricles in the brain become larger. So they're the spaces in the brain where the cerebrospinal fluid hangs out are a little larger. And I think the the understanding of that is because there's a loss of neurons in the area. So there's some degeneration in the area. And I think most of those are associated with dopamine. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what those ones are. Um, so yeah, what we know is that it is due to a degeneration of um, cells in that area. Do all patients with schizophrenia have larger ventricles? Um, I think it's more one of the many signs than that everyone has that, and it's very obvious for everyone. Um, and I think it's something that happens, you know, more later on for someone who's experienced schizophrenia. Um, and keep in mind, you know, medications can reduce the kind of acute phase of schizophrenia where someone is kind of, you know, uh, delusional and having a lot of the uh, psychotic symptoms. Um, so with having less of those episodes, there's less that you see that written on the brain less. Um, so early intervention and good intervention can be helpful. Um, and probably you wouldn't see some of these kind of more uh, later stage uh, advanced um, symptoms. All right, three more questions. Uh, next one. I am curious about research regarding misophonia. All right, I'll flick that one up. I've been following information about this condition for around five years. I think it's interesting because the cause is still unknown. In the past, misophonia has been compared to obsessive compulsive disorder and synesthesia. I want to make sure all of the information I find uh, on the internet is truthful. Uh, what are some elements I should be looking for in research articles? I'm going to pause this for a sec and go look this one up. Okay, so I learned some things in the past three minutes. So I would say that, you know, misophonia is this idea that there are certain sounds that, you know, quote unquote, drive you crazy or are very you know, annoying to you. Um, you know, I think there are certain sounds that annoy all of us and that's just kind of normal. Um, but what this is saying is that they're to such an extreme that they, you know, cause a problem for us. Like we get very angry or rageful. Or we avoid other people or places where we might experience these sounds. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not a mental disease or mental health diagnosis or disorder. 
Um, the, the, the thing I watched said something about it sometimes being mistaken for an anxiety disorder or bipolar disorder. And if you're mistaking this for one of those disorders, you don't know how to identify those disorders. Like, I mean, seriously, like look at the criteria for any anxiety disorder. And, you know, if you think that just because people um, get very upset over certain sounds or annoyed by certain sounds, that that equals an anxiety disorder, that's that's pretty, pretty sad. Like you're not studying anxiety disorders, clearly. Um, but, you know, this is clearly a phenomenon that people experience where it is bothersome to them. Um, this, you know, I don't know what to think about it, whether it's something that we even need to be concerned about or not, but it is a phenomenon. I mean, you can, you know, point, you can probably point at yourselves. There are certain sounds that are very kind of uh, just irritating, you know, like the old nails on a chalkboard thing. I have a real hatred of, uh, um, uh, you know, silverware sliding across itself or people putting, you know, biting their fork and sliding their silverware out it makes me cringe. Um, you know, I don't get up and leave the room or give them a hard time about it or anything, but it just, you know, there's a physiological and, and mental reaction to that that I noticed for myself. And I'm sure we all have examples um, of this sort of thing. So I don't know what to make of it and if it's even important in terms of mental health. It's an interesting phenomenon, but is it important in terms of mental health? I don't know. But if you're looking for research articles on it, uh, any website that is by the National Institute of Health um, probably is going to have reputable information. They put out a lot of stuff that they're kind of consolidating research and making it publicly, you know, more able to be uh, consumed. Um, but if you're looking for research articles on it, you want to go to your libraries, like research article website, um, find things on publicly. You can go to PubMed. Uh, Google Scholar, you know, not every article is good or reputable or even scientifically accurate, but they're at least peer-reviewed articles that other scientists agree should be published. Now, you know, whether those scientists are correct or not is one thing, but, you know, I trust articles coming from there. I evaluate them with a critical eye, but I'm good at that because that's my job. Um, so I evaluate them with a critical eye, but that's the best place to find good, reputable information. Don't go with, like, message boards or, you know, you know, healthstuff.com or that's not real. I was trying to think of one that wasn't real. Just like silly websites like that. Um, and if you do find something that's interesting from a website like that, they should be citing their sources. So there should be an article or some source that they get this information from. So look for that and then follow that back. And it should lead you to some empirical articles or some expert commentary or something along those lines. So that's the best way to find out. Um, if the information you're reading on the internet is truthful, follow it back to scientific resources or articles. And like I said, trust anything from the National Institute of Health, Mayo Clinic, places like that are being very cautious about what they put out because they want to make sure it's reasonably scientifically accurate. If you're not sure of a source and you're in my class, email me. Even if it's, you're, you're just listening, actually. Go ahead and shoot me an email. Um, go over to dohealthybehealthy.com and, and, and you know send me a message. Um, and I'll uh, do my best to answer if a source is reputable or not. There's a lot of crap out there, so it's good to, you know, to consider that and to police it. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Final question. Uh, this person says, I'm a Christian, and I have severe anxiety. A lot of people say to just not to worry. I feel, I some, I feel sometimes like I'm doing something wrong because I'm constantly worrying. What are some healthy ways to cope with severe anxiety to alleviate symptoms. Well, I would say if you're experiencing uh, severe anxiety, um, 
the best thing that you can do is try to work with a therapist. They can give you coping skills for anxiety and ways that can help um, you to uh, to work through this and to become kind of um, uh, to habituate and create some new learning to where the things that typically make you feel anxious will probably still make you feel anxious, but to a degree that you can work with. It will feel it will make you feel anxious to what we would consider a normal degree of anxiety as opposed to an extreme degree of anxiety, which causes some kind of impairment, causes, makes it hard for you to do the things you want to do and the things that you care about. So that, that would be my suggestion, is to, to look for therapy. Now, um, you mentioned the fact that, you, this person mentions the fact that they're a Christian, and, you know, I've noticed that sometimes uh, within certain religious communities, uh, getting therapy and getting help with, with, um, with any kind of mental health concern um, is looked down upon because they should just let go and let God and let God steer them. Um, but I would say there are a lot of counselors out there that take a Christian approach, that take a, a faith-based approach. Um, and there are even some that I guarantee there are some within your community. So uh, I would re- highly recommend um, findatherapist.com. It, it creates a list of, and, and they don't give me any money. Just, I know this is a podcast, but I don't make any money from it. This, these, this isn't an ad. They don't give me any money for this. It's just what I tend to use. So findatherapist.com is the one that I find best. Uh, findapsychologist.com is another one. But on findatherapist.com, in our area, I know there's at least two or three counselors that I remember looking at that that do faith-based counseling. So they're looking for people who want to incorporate their faith into their mental health journey, their mental health changes. Um, so I would very highly recommend those folks. And if you want to take a, a, a philosophical, religious approach to that, I'm a secular person myself. Um, but I would say that, you know, if God put you on earth for a purpose, he probably put these counselors on earth for a purpose too. And maybe that purpose is to help you. Um, and you know, whether or not you believe that in this purpose stuff or not, they're certainly there and able to help you. So I would highly recommend if you, if your faith is a big part of who you are, um, or maybe you're trying to justify seeking mental health treatment to some folks who might be a little ignorant about it, or might be a little, um, concerned about what you might learn there. Um, you might be able to show them like, look, this person is one of us. This person is a faith-based counselor and, you know, they would help me in the context of my faith, not outside of it. Um, now I would argue, you know, like I said, I'm a secular person, but I treat lots and lots of people and I work with people, um, who have a very strong faith and that, you know, my lack of that does not interfere with that treatment. I think that it fits very well. Again, maybe I'm here for a purpose. I wouldn't ascribe to that belief myself, but maybe I am here for a purpose, and that purpose is to help people. Um, That's certainly the purpose I've made of my life. Um, And so, you know, even if we don't have the same faith, um, I think that a counselor can still help you, but it might be an easier sell to friends and family um, who are telling you, you know, oh, just don't worry, let go, let God... Um, maybe it would be an easier sell uh, to have a faith-based counselor. Um, and there are pastoral counselors as well. Um, pastoral counseling is a thing. So these are people who are kind of um, community faith community leaders who do extra training in pastoral counseling so they can be counselors. Um, and I think both of those might be good options for someone who is feeling a conflict about um, seeking help but also feeling like they shouldn't need it because it has something to do with their faith that they're not feeling better. And it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of faith you have of whether or not you have um, some emotional challenges. It has nothing to do with that. Um, 
but it may be more comfortable to see a faith-based counselor. But I, you know, as a as a caveat to all of this, I would say that I am not a faith-based counselor. I'm a secular person, and I have very successfully worked with people um, who are who do have a very strong faith, um, and it it hasn't been a problem for us working together. So. That was a great final question. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to my class for submitting these. Uh, and I will see you probably in a few short weeks uh, to do another one of these as we get as uh, more anonymous questions kind of roll in. Uh, thanks for listening. Take care. And remember to do healthy so that you can be healthy. <laughs>